And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, It's podcast 29, and we're just as surprised as you are. I can't believe it. We're halfway through our third year. I know, that's crazy. It's nuts. But anyway, congratulations, still in order. Congratulations, Mr. Sweets. Congratulations, Uncle Frankie. Yes. And so what's on the docket tonight? It's February, the month with Valentine's Day. So, of course, we're discussing six weird, deadly, or simply dysfunctional couples. And what goes with bad romance? UFOs, of course. So we have two more stories from our collection of vintage audio documentaries. February is also Oscar season, so in its honor, we have another selection from the great Neil Gaiman, performed by the man himself. A view from the cheap seats, it's his tale of the Academy Awards. Then there's the February edition of the Weird and Gamey News, an audio drama of revenge, and some other stuff. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started. Truth is stranger than fiction. This is the proof. This is Ripley. Believe it or not. When they tie the knot in Ceylon, they really mean it. The wedding is actually performed by tying together the thumbs of the bride and groom. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a prophecy of love that came true. In the Middle Ages, prophets and magicians often had the ear of the rulers of the land. Men like King Fernando I of Portugal. A prophet said he would marry a girl named Lenore. So the king soon became engaged to Princess Lenore of Aragon. Then he became engaged to another Princess Lenore of Castile. And finally, as the prophet had said, he did indeed marry a Lenore. Not a princess, but a commoner. Believe it or not. Father William Gill is an ordained priest of the Church of England. On June 25, 1959, Father Gill and dozens of his native parishioners at the Papua Mission in New Guinea witnessed an aerial phenomenon that to this day defies logical explanation. The strange object they saw hung in the air hundreds of feet above the ground for almost four hours, according to Father Gill. You could describe it, I suppose, as a circular ship. Uh, 
with a kind of deck and bridge on the top. A, a big circular ship which wouldn't be very far removed from one's um, idea of a hovercraft, but no noise. It was a, a dull yellow, um, a bright orange-y colour. Um, it wasn't as though the thing was itself lit up all around. It was more as though some other light was lighting it up. It didn't look as though it was like an electric light bulb, the light coming from within. And then all around the, the whole object was a sparkling effect. The following night, the strange object returned. And this time, Father Gill, along with 38 Papuans, noticed what appeared to be the silhouettes of occupants aboard the craft peering down at them. When we saw this object, and we saw figures on it, uh, moving about, trying to do something, one of the natural reactions would be to wave, and this is what I did. I waved with one hand, and a figure seemed to wave with one hand back, with one arm. And then Ananias, the teacher standing next to me, he waved uh, in the same sort of fashion, uh, waving his arms across. And uh, again, a figure seemed to do the same. It seemed as though this figure was bending over um, a deck or a rail of a ship and simply uh, responding uh, to, to our waves. We couldn't make out any details of, uh, of face or whether they had hair or anything like that. Uh, it was more as though they were in a diving suit. I sent Eric, the, uh, one of the schoolboys, uh, down to the house for a flashlight to um, uh, see if we could um, uh, get an acknowledgement with a flashlight. We um, flashed the torch on and off, and it just seemed as though to us that the, the whole of the ship moved uh, sideways uh, as a pendulum. Uh, not very much, but uh, just a little to the right and then a little to the left, as though it was acknowledging uh, the flashes of the torch. And that ceased after about half a minute. The next major event was when we uh, tried to uh, encourage it to land. We beckoned, uh, but it didn't. Um, and the creatures on board seemed to lose all interest in us. Um, they were, seemed to be more intent on working on whatever they were doing. This is assuming they were working, but it appeared to us that they were doing something on the deck, uh, fixing something or uh, doing something. and they seem to be more interested in that uh, than, than us. When it uh, did disappear, it seemed to uh, disappear to uh, very quickly in that it either went off very quickly so that um, in a matter of half a second or so, it was a large craft, which one might imagine about 30 odd feet in diameter, uh, down to a pinhead of nothing, all within about half a second. Dr. J. Allen Hynek traveled to Papua New Guinea to personally investigate Father Gill's sighting. I was successful in finding six of the original native witnesses who confirmed the story. I think one of the highlights of that whole event was the fact that Father Gill and the natives did not take it too seriously when it was happening. In fact, Father Gill told me when he was a guest at my home that uh, he felt uh, it might have been some strange new device of you Americans, as he put it. 
I thanked him for the compliment, but I assured him that we Americans did not have any device that could hover several hundred feet in the air silently and then take off at a rapid speed. January 6, 1976, Elaine Thomas and Louise Smith had treated their friend Mona Stafford to a birthday dinner at a restaurant 30 miles from their homes in Liberty, Kentucky. Around 11.15 p.m., as they were driving back, they became dizzy, their heads ached miserably. Looking up, they were horrified to see a huge, brightly colored circular object hovering over their car. Louise Smith lost control of the vehicle and the next thing they knew, it was almost two hours later and they were 12 miles further down the road. When they returned home, Louise Smith noticed a burn mark on her neck. And my neck was burning. Oh, it was hurting so bad, you know. And I asked Mona to look at my neck. And then we all got to comparing, you know, because we were all burning and hurting, you know. And Mona's eyes, they were something terrible. So we looked at our necks, you know. I looked at Mona's and all. We each had a mark on our neck about three inches long and an inch wide that just the top layer of skin looked like it had been removed. So I looked at my watch to see what time it was, and the minute hand was going as fast as the second hand should have been going, completely malfunctioning. I picked up my alarm clock, and it starts doing the same thing. Everything I touched went haywire, you know. And uh, when I went into the bathroom and started to wash, I burned just like, well, it was almost like I was scalding myself, you know, from the heat. And so we did go to the doctor, and he told us that we definitely was exposed to something like radiation that could have been the reason for the burning, for the hurting in Mona's eyes, you know, and all of this. Dr. Leo Sprinkle, an associate professor of psychology at the University of Wyoming, heard about the experience and agreed to try hypnotic regression on the women to help them recall the time for which they could not account. Listen closely to this exclusive portion of Dr. Sprinkle's original hypnotic interview with Louise Smith and note her anguish as she relives the experience. Oh, my. 
control the car. And that's frightening because you can't control the car. I'm wrong. <laughs> What's happening to the car? I want to keep going. I can't hold the wheel. I don't have my foot on the gas. You have your foot off the gas pedal? Not on there. And still the car's going. I'm going 85 miles an hour, Mona. So the car shows it's 85 miles an hour. What's wrong with my car? Leonard Stringfield, a former Air Force UFO investigator, now affiliated with the Mutual UFO Network, was present for several of the hypnotic sessions. The contortions and the crying that these women showed, you know, during the uh, hypnosis, and it, it would make a believer out of you. It took Dr. Sprinkle several tries at regression to extract the terrifying details of the missing minutes. Louise Smith ultimately remembered waking up on what seemed to be an operating table with strange creatures peering down at her. They were um, about four to four and a half feet tall, and they wore a dark, tight-fitted suit and a hood. Um, the hood was tight-fitted also, you know. The only thing visible was the eyes. They were very huge and pointed more to the temple, not straight across like our eyes would be. There was uh, an odor. It was almost like a, a mold. Have you ever smelled a refrigerator that's been fastened up that with no electric for a long time, you know? And you open that door and you get this uh, kind of moldy smell. I smell that. And I have never been asked this question, but now is an opportunity to bring this out also. The odor itself, I smelled stronger when the beings were near me. And when they looked at me, we did not talk uh, verbally like we're talking now. It was a telepathy type thing. And I would tell myself I'm not going to look at them, but there was no way I could resist them. And then at one point, um, they poured a liquid over my entire body. And I thought I was gonna die because I could not breathe. I could not breathe and it was so hot, you know. So then when they pulled it off, it was like ripping a piece of tape, you know, from the bottom of this kind. And what that was for, other than I get so frightened, I think maybe they were making a mold, you know. Dr. Sprinkle sums up the questions raised by the Kentucky abduction case. Are they physically real? Are they psychologically real? Or both? We know they're psychologically real in the sense that the person's have described events which are significant to them and which have caused some changes in their lives. Whether they are physically real, the evidence suggests that, for example, burn marks on the back of the neck of the women, uh, symptoms, uh, loss of weight, uh, sleeplessness, uh, irritability or arousal of anxiety, um, 
So we know that uh, they are experiencing physiologically some stimulus. Uh, uh, what we don't know is, does that mean that uh, they were taken on board a flying saucer and examined physically, or were they psychologically programmed to have that kind of experience? It's a strange, strange world we live in, Master Jack You taught me all I know and I'll never look back It's a very strange world and I thank you, Master Jack Welcome everyone to the Weird and Gaming News Report, a compendium of festivals, anniversaries, special days, and strange reports from the shadowy edges. This time the edges of February. 
Just a taste, really, of all the odd, wonderful things out there. The month of February means different things to different people. There is the serious memorializing of Black History Month, but February is also known as National Dental Health Month, as well as Grapefruit Month. And then there are the special days, like Ferris Wheel Day on the 14th, Gumdrop Day on the 15th, and also on the 14th, it was the Extraterrestrial Cultural Day in Roswell, New Mexico. On February 20th, in northern New Hampshire, it's Hootie Hoo Day. What's Hootie Hoo Day, you ask? Well, everyone goes out at noon and waves their hands in the air and chants Hootie Hoo. That's what Hootie Hoo Day is. And also on February 20th, it's Handcuff Day. And it commemorates that back in 1912, George Carney patented the modern handcuff design. You know, the one that gets tighter when you press on it. Fascinating, Mr. Sweets. And then we have the festivals of February. And reporter Jimmy Sweets has the first one for us. The first one, of course, is Cowboy Mardi Gras. And that's from February 16th to the 18th. And that's three days of a New Orleans-inspired celebration in Bandera, Texas. Most of it at the 11th Street Cowboy Bar. But there is also a parade down Main Street with decorated cowboys and decorated horses, floats, and four-wheel drive longhorns. There is also a gumbo cook-off and a dog and cowboy costume contest. (laughs) I think that's animal abuse, but anyway... Our next festival is the Magic Lantern Festival, and it's at Chiswick House and Gardens, and that's on the edge of London. Chiswick is a beautiful Palladian villa, and it was completed in 1729, and its gardens were kind of uh, trying to create or recreate what the Roman or Greek gardens must have been like. And Basically, they didn't have much to go on, so it's really a fantasy, but it's a beautiful one. The festival there, it marks the end of the Chinese New Year. And during the festival, people walk through these beautiful gardens. And on either side of them, there's up to 50 dazzling lanterns. Sculptures, really. And all of them are made of lantern material, and they're lit with many colors. In the past, there have been colorful scenes from buildings like the Parliament Building or Big Ben. And there's also been fanciful characters like dragons and other fantasy things. This year, the theme is the Silk Road to China. And it should be spectacular as ever. I bet you that looks beautiful in sunset, Frank. Ah, yes. Anytime. Well, our next festival is the Harbin Ice Festival in Harbin, China, in northeastern China. And that's from January 5th all the way through February 25th, which is why we're including it in February. It's a temporary city of buildings and sculptures all made from ice and snow. At night, it's lit up by colored lights and looks spectacular. Ice is gotten from the Sanghua River, and some of the ice is even made from deionized water, and so it's clear like glass. It's lit from within and without with multicolored lights and can look like stained glass. Huge models of buildings like the Forbidden City or Great Wall or European and Middle Eastern buildings tower over your head. Gorgeous, gorgeous. And on February 26th is going to be the Great Lowrider Show and Concert Super Show in Glendale, Arizona at the University of Phoenix Stadium. There'll be hundreds of cars, trucks, motorcycles, bicycles, and pedal cars, all with custom paint jobs sparkling in the Arizona sun like gems. There's going to be great music and food along with celebrity appearances and a car hop competition. So check it. That's very interesting, Frank Reinberg. Ah, but now we're going to bring it down a little bit and talk about the strange and bizarre stories and sightings that have taken place in February. On the night of February 10th, 
A glowing UFO was sighted over Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, dropping little glowing globulars into the water below. Were these probes, smaller ships, or refuse? We'll have to see if there's any future reports. And there was also a silvery disc shape caught on film in the skies over Bangalore, India, back on January 25th. It flew at great speeds over the city and seemed to be carrying something beneath itself, something dark and definitely not silvery. Also, a video of a purported poltergeist opening a candle lantern door was filmed in the famous Wilshire Hotel Bar in Amesbury. This is one of the places where the Beatles' help was filmed. The video clearly shows the little door opening by itself. We'll have to wait and see if it turns out to be a hoax or not. On February 8th, a terrified hiker filmed a human-like hairy creature in the wood near Yalta in the Ukraine. And on February 7th, thousands of dead and dying bees washed up on Naples Beach in Florida. Swimmers had to be careful where they stepped because some people were getting stung. Very strange, Mr. Sweets. Well, back on February 6th, a Yellowstone webcam captured some very indistinct humanoid figures. A group, actually. It's kind of hard to tell what they are, but they're definitely standing on two legs. And on February 6th, a sighting was reported on the nightly news about a South Dakota man, excuse me, North Dakota man, who claimed to have tracked a Bigfoot for seven miles in the snow, and he had print pictures to prove it. Christopher Bauer, a man near Allendale with a lot of trapping experience under his belt, tracked a Bigfoot on Christmas Day. He started his adventure because a family friend had spotted a very large, ugly, hairy monster outside her kitchen window. Bauer followed its trail for seven miles. There were hundreds of prints, each one 18 by 8 inches. The thing appeared to have a four-foot stride. And to lighten the mood, Frank, this month six officials in central China have been punished for falling asleep in a meeting discussing how to motivate lazy bureaucrats. <laughs> Pictures of the sleeping officials have been shown in newspapers and on TV, and the sleepy mid-level bureaucrats had to write self-criticisms and make public apologies. And I'll tell you, that sounds like my last performance review at work, Frank. <laughs> ah, now to bring it down again, James. Another sighting finally at Knock Ness. It was back on Sunday, February 5th at 9 a.m. A man noticed bubbles rising from the surface not far from a pier at Loch Ness where he was fishing. The source of the bubbles seemed to be moving further and further away, trailing the bubbles after it, and continued up to about uh, 200 meters away and then stopped. Could this be Nessie's return? We can only hope. Fascinating, Frank. Yeah. Now, clear away from that and another continent, another water beast was sighted, this time in the Shanna River in Alaska. And what's more, it was filmed by a BLM employee, Greg McGraw. The footage shows what appears to be a creature breaching the water in several points, and beneath it, what looks like even more of the beasts submerged. Could this be a Loch Ness of Alaska? We'll have to wait for future reports. Very mysterious. I just want to, I don't know if this is lightening the mood. This is very disturbing to me. But <laughs> anyways, a woman was rushed to the hospital after a snake got stuck in her earlobe. Ashley ah. Glowy <laughs> Ashley Glowy was taking a selfie with her snake when it decided to push itself through the piercing in her ear. It squeezed half of its body through before it got stuck. 
Hospital employees stretched her earlobe out so that the snake could escape. The picture is of a mid-sized snake, like a gopher snake, not a tiny snake. Oh, that's horrible. Well, there you have it. That must be the gaming portion of the Weird and Gaming News. Oh, I almost forgot. February 18th to the 19th was the Mary Queen of Scots Festival and International Highland Games. It was at the Queen Mary in Long Beach. And it included a coronation of the Queen, whiskey tasting, piping, drumming, Highlands dancing, and games. And if you like swagger, acts of daring, and good whiskey, you won't want to miss it next year. Frank, who doesn't like swagger? There we go. Appropriate and virile in an understated manly sort of plaid. Don't you judge it! Better hold the innuendo because I go all Nintendo when I'm mad. Don't you question why I choose to have a hemline. If you try it, you'll be picking up your teeth. I'm as macho as a Gibson or a Brando, and I'm going in commando underneath. And I will call testosterone With all the power I possess To prove a kilt is not a dress To prove a kilt is not a dress What a garment! Why I'd have to be a poet To describe the non-constricting way it feels my birthright, my historic family tartan, and it makes for easy farting after meals. I'm the leader of a group of noble Scotsmen, it's a string of bloody victories we boast. Cause we're brawlers, yes we're brawny and we're burly, if you're calling me a girly man you're toast. And I will plant my giant foot upon your scrawny neck, unless you say I Kilt is not a dress. Shut up, a kilt is not a dress. Na 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 These are knee socks. They complete the whole ensemble. Don't be giggling or you're gonna get me pissed. Mr. Blackwell, if you diss the cut or pattern, I will knock you clear to Saturn with my fist. When it's breezy and the highland winds are whipping, all our enemies are flipping out with fear. Cause the features that we share with all our cronies are the clanging brass cojones that you hear. And we have There were authors grumbling about not going to the Oscars. I heard about it from friends. So why are you going? They asked. I had written a book called Coraline, which director Henry Selleck had transformed 
into a stop-motion wonderland. I'd helped Henry as much as I could through the process of turning something from a book into a film. I had endorsed the film, encouraged people to see it, mugged with buttons on an internet trailer. I'd also written a 15-second sequence for the Oscars in which Coraline told an interviewer what winning an Oscar would do for her. I'd assumed that this would get me into the Oscars. It didn't. But Henry, as director, had tickets and could decide where they would go, and one of them went to me. My father had died on March the 7th, 2009. The Oscars are March the 7th, 2010. I expect that it would just be another day, and it will not bother me at all, demonstrating that I do not know myself very well, because when the day arrives, I am melancholy and do not want to go to the Oscars. I want to be at home, walking in the woods with my dog, and if I could simply press a button and be there without disappointing anybody, I would. I get dressed. A designer named Cambriel, whom I met when she had made a dress that would allow my fiancé and Jason Webley to represent conjoined twins, had offered to dress me for the Oscars, and I took her up on it. She made me a jacket and a waistcoat, and I fancy that I look pretty good in them. Best of all, now I have an answer to the people who ask, what are you wearing to the Oscars? And it makes Cambriel amazingly happy. Focus Films, who distributed Coraline, are looking after me. The previous night, they had a small reception at the Chateau Marmont for their two Oscar nominees, Coraline and a serious man. The partygoers were a strange mashup of Minneapolis Jews and animators. <laughs> Even more oddly, I was one of the Minneapolis Jews. <laughs> or almost, I wound up comparing notes with one of the other partygoers on the St. Paul Papers pulse-pounding expose that I actually live an hour away from Minneapolis. The best thing about the Oscars I realized when the nominees were announced is that Coraline won't win. In the year that Up is nominated for Best Picture, which obviously it won't win, nothing but Up can win Best Animated Picture. A limo picks me up at 3 p.m. and we drive to the Oscars. It's a slow drive. Streets are closed off. The last civilians we see are standing on a street corner holding placards, telling me that God hates fags that the recent earthquakes are God's special way of hating fags, <laughs> and that the Jews stole something, but I can't see what, as another placard is in the way. <laughs> A block before we reach the Kodak Theatre, the car is searched, and then we're there, and I'm tipped out onto the red carpet. Someone pushes a ticket into my hand to get the car back later that night. It's controlled chaos. I'm standing blankly, realizing I have no idea what to do now, but the women look like butterflies and there are people in the bleachers who shout as each limo draws up. Someone says, Neil? <laughs> it's Diet from Focus. I just came back from walking Henry through. What a nice coincidence. Would you like me to take you through? I would like that very much. <laughs> she asks if I would like to walk past the cameras and I say that I would because my fiance is in Australia and my daughters are watching on TV and Cambriel will be happy to see her jacket on television. We head down into the throng behind someone in a beautiful dress. It looks like a watercolor of a dream. I have no idea who anyone is except for Steve Carell, because he looks just like Steve Carell on television, only a tiny bit less orange. <laughs> we are scrunched together tightly as we go through metal detectors, and the beautiful watercolor dress is trodden on. 
and the lady wearing it is very gracious about this. I ask Diet who's inside the dress, and she tells me it's Rachel McAdams. I want to say hello, Rachel said nice things about me in interviews, but she's working right now. I'm not. No one wants to take my photo, or as Diet discovers, to interview me. I'm invisible. At the bend in the red carpet, we pause. I look down at Rachel McAdams' watercolor dress and wonder if I can see a footprint. Cameras flash, but not at me. And we're into the Kodak Theater. Someone else introduces me to the editor of Variety. I realize my facial recognition skills do not work when people are in tuxedos. <laughs> Except for James Cameron, whom I have now only ever seen in a tuxedo and would not recognize wearing anything else. I tell this to the editor of Variety. He points to a man with a tan and a huge grin, tells me it's the mayor of Los Angeles. He comes to all these things, he says. Why isn't he behind his desk working? Uh, because this is the biggest day in Hollywood's year, I venture, and it's Sunday. <laughs> well, yes, but he still comes out for the opening of a drinks cabinet. I went to the Golden Globes six weeks earlier and discovered that the commercial breaks in award shows are spent in a strange form of en masse Hollywood speed dating as people shuttle around the room trying to find friends or make deals and assume that tonight will be much the same. The Kodak Theater has a ground floor and above that, three mezzanines. My ticket is for the first mezzanine. I head sheep-like up the stairs. There's a crush to get in as a disembodied voice tells us urgently that the Academy Awards will start in five minutes. I stare at the woman in front of me. She has blonde hair and a face that's strangely fish-like. A scary, sweet, plastic surgery face. She has old hands and a small, wrinkled husband who looks much older than her. I wonder if they started out the same age. <laughs> and we're in with no time to spare. The lights go down and Neil Patrick Harris sings a special Oscars tune. It does not seem to have a tune. Several people on Twitter who aren't sure which Neil is which congratulate me on it. And now our hosts, Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin, they come out, they make jokes. From the first mezzanine, the timing is off, the jokes are awkward, the delivery is wooden. But it doesn't feel as if they're playing to us. I wonder if it works on television and send the question out on Twitter. A few hundred people tell me it's just as bad on TV. <laughs> 20 tell me they're enjoying it. I decide this is what Twitter is for, keeping you company when you're all alone on the mezzanine. Best animated movie is the second category of the night. My 15 seconds of Coraline talking to the camera goes by fast. There, I think, the largest audience that my words will ever have. Up wins. The Oscars continue. In the audience, we cannot see what they're seeing on television at home. Somewhere below me, George Clooney is grimacing at the camera, but I do not know. Tina Fey and Robert Downey Jr. present the best screenplay award and are funny. I wonder if they wrote their own bit. During the commercials, the lights go down and they play music to mingle by. Roxanne does not want to put on the red light. <laughs> I head for the first mezzanine bar. I'm hungry and want to kill some time. I drink whiskey. I order a chocolate brownie, which turns out to be about as big as my head and the sweetest thing I've ever put in my mouth. <laughs> People are wandering up and down the stairs. Whiskey and sugar careening through my system. I defy the orders on my ticket not to photograph anything and I Twitter a picture of the bar menu. My fiance is sending me messages on Twitter urging me to photograph the inside of the women's toilet. 
something she did during the Golden Globes. But even in my sugar-addled state, this seems a potentially disastrous idea. <laughs> Still, I think I should head downstairs and in the next commercial break, say hello to Henry Selleck. I walk over to the stairs. A nice young man in a suit asks me for my ticket. I show it to him. He explains that as a resident of the first mezzanine, I'm not permitted to walk downstairs and potentially bother the A-list. I am outraged. I'm not actually outraged, but I'm a bit bored and have friends downstairs. I decide that I will persuade the inhabitants of the mezzanine to rise up as one and storm the stairs. Like in Titanic, they might shoot a few of us, I decide, but they cannot stop us all. We can be free, we can drink in the downstairs bar, we can mingle with Harvey Weinstein. Someone tells me on Twitter that nobody's checking the elevators. I suspect that this might be a trap and head back to my seat. Rachel McAdams presents an award in her beautiful oh-so-tread-onable dress. For the Best Actor and Actress Awards, a tableau of people who've worked with the nominees tell us how wonderful they are. I wonder if this works on television. On the stage in front of us, it's painfully clumsy. People below us are milling and chatting and schmoozing more with every commercial break. There's an edge of panic to the disembodied announcer's voice as she orders them back to their seats. The man in the bar who reminded me of Sean Penn turns out to have been Sean Penn. <laughs> Jeff Bridges' standing ovation reaches all the way to the top mezzanine. Sandra Bullock's standing ovation only reaches the front rows of our level and stops there. Catherine Bigelow's standing ovation covers the entire hall, except for some reason the top right of the first mezzanine where I am sitting, where we remain sitting and clap politely. <laughs> it all seems to be building up to a crescendo. And then Tom Hanks walks out onto the stage and tells us with no build-up, if you exclude months of For Your Consideration campaigning, that, oh, by the way, the Hurt Locker won Best Picture, and good night, and we're out. Up two escalators to the governor's ball. I sit and chat to Michael Sheen, who brought his 11-year-old daughter, Lily, about the sushi dinner we had two days before, interrupted and ended by a police raid. We still have no idea why. Next morning, it will be a front-page story on the New York Times. They were serving illicit whale meat. I see Henry Selleck. He seems relieved that award season is over and that he can get on with his life. I feel as if I've sleepwalked invisibly through one of the most melancholy days of my life. There are glamorous parties that evening, but I don't go to any of them, preferring to sit in a hotel lobby with good friends. We talk about the Oscars. The next morning, the back page of the LA Times Oscar supplement is a huge panoramic photograph of the people on the red carpet. Somewhat to my surprise, I see myself standing front and center, staring down at Rachel McAdams' beautiful watercolor dress, <laughs> inspecting it for footprints. And I want to dedicate that one to everybody who is or was at Leica and who made Caroline. Thank you all. A fantastic lost civilization of Vikings. And now, an Arctic expedition captured, branded as invaders, escapes from the island at the top of the world. Come on! Through volcanoes, a giant whirlpool, a tidal wave, 
fields of boiling mud, runaway boulders, gigantic icicles, killer whales guarding their forbidden graveyard of treasure, and a magnificent turn-of-the-century dirigible battles a storm at the top of the world. Now, take your family to see adventure beyond imagination in Walt Disney Productions' screen epic, The Island at the Top of the World. Our next selection is a piece by Chicago poet Bridget Watson from her album, In My Own Skin. I've been waiting a long time. My chair is uncomfortable, but I'm going to be patient until it's my turn. Flipping through the magazines, reading up on all the fads. Oh boy, I wish she'd hurry up before it's been over two hours. This is no place for small children. I don't understand why mothers insist. This is my time for pampering. I don't want to hear babies crying. I came in early to try to beat the rush. I made sure of my appointment. I even bought cash. It's just taking too long for me to get my hair done. I don't complain about it, I keep it all to myself. I think the service would be better for I spend big money. If I could do it myself, child, believe me I would. I've been down that road, it's just no good. So quietly I sit while my booty hurts. I've cussed in my mind a thousand times. This happens every Saturday when I come to get my hair done. I got better things to do than spend my whole day at the shop. I could be at home eating, drinking, whatever, spending time with my gift. Look, I worked hard all week, I just want my hair done. Hello, roommate. How you feel this morning? After staying out so late, how come you came from the direction of my girl's house when your girl lives the other way? Hello, roommate. Now listen, buddy. I'm not accusing you of wrong. Call and call my baby's number all night long. She didn't answer till I saw you walking home. Nobody since you are my best friend I won't say you caused this hurt But to accuse a friend would be unfair Don't you know that I bought that lipstick That's all over your shirt When I bought her that perfume in the Hello, roommate. Hello. Now listen, buddy. Don't expect her to be true. You had better keep an eye on this girl I love. Cause this world is full of guys like you 
parcel of Valentine's Day along with all the warm and fuzzy stuff. But uh, for me, my most of my memories of Valentine's Day was of family celebrations and uh, school celebrations growing up. Yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, you know how when everybody was talking, they usually, every, every year somebody goes into the commercialism or something like that. And I never thought that because it was always like making what you had at home or whatever. It was well before Pinterest or whatever. We were making all this stuff. You were a good artist. So we always got super good like monster cards or something super exciting. And, uh, you know, mom would make something that was like Victorian or something, you know, like an old style thing. And it was a big party as much as, you know, we celebrated everything. St. Patrick's Day. Whatever. Yeah. And so there was always candy and, and yeah. treats and like yes. all kinds of stuff so yes. i red never jello, saw it as a bad thing <laughs> red jello with uh you know um, whipped cream and all that stuff and then at school it was great uh you know you had to bring one for everybody so you had a bag on the back of your chair and people would bring in all different kinds and then your friends would bring you something cool with candy mom was telling me the other day um that you know, she always wanted to get one with a sucker attached to it. And she looked oh. over and they were bringing one. She could tell it was hers. And it was the kind that had a sucker on it. She's waiting and waiting. They dropped it in. And when she got it, like someone had taken the sucker off. So she oh, had nothing. Just it's so funny that she's like, <laughs> and it's just like very bitterness. Bitter, bitter, bitter. Bitterness thing. We, you know, it's funny is that we had, uh, you know, we always had that kind of thing. And I would bring, we'd bring stuff. But now there's, you know, so many store-bought things, and they cost like $2. So my kids just and went through it. fantastic. Yeah. Like the one, you make it and you fold it into a paper airplane, like I was given this year. And then the other one, like, what do you call that thing, the predictors? That... Oh, but I forget what it's called, but it's the paper. It's like origami, but you, you count the numbers, and then you peel it back, and it make gives it, it makes a Except prediction. Except it has lame things like, yeah. be yourself. And, yeah, you know, whatever. Mine, yeah, right? I don't want to pound nonsense. Instead of like, you're dying from cholera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The fun stuff. Yeah. I should have taken the real stuff off and put stuff like that in there. But they have, uh, you know, cool stuff. And, of course, my my kids are into, you know, uh, Star Wars and, and uh, oh yeah, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So they have all that kind of stuff. But I, I think it's funny because now the alternative things are all pencils. And, you know, yeah, you there's, there's not that candy. No but candy. I, I will say that... Uh, one of my kids this year uh, came home with like a full Snickers bar, and I was like, "What's going on?" Man? That's pretty killer. No complaint. I remember so the really old uh, store bought ones at first. They were very chintzy paper that if you got them wet, they would just crinkle up and go away. And they would uh, they would come in a box too. And they were that the version back then. Now they're all cardboard and. Now they have pretty the, substantial. I had cardboard ones, but they didn't start coming with stuff. I don't think. They were just the, um, they just a cardboard thing, and you'd have like perforated edges, so you'd peel them back, and then you'd. Uh, it's funny because we spent time putting all the you know names of everybody on there and stuff. And this year they sent a thing home and, or or whatever, and it was like just Sadie just had to write from Sadie on all of them. And I thought they actually made it an official thing. What was why did they send a paper home? 
No, it was just like, hey, we're having Valentine's. If you're going to bring, bring them for everybody. But just, you know, you can just sign them from, from the individual or whatever. In case you don't remember everybody's name or can't spell it. Yeah, or whatever. Well, you she's kind of young. So, yeah. How's yeah. she going to What's this guy's name? I don't know. Yeah, I was asking. She knows five people's name and the rest. She probably could point them out. But, yeah. So, you know, I thought that was funny. Jack Anyways. was the only one who used to know everyone's name in school. I didn't know him back then either. So, it was just five people. And that, that was probably high school. Yeah, it was me too. <laughs> everyone else is, sir, how you doing? My wife knows everybody's name from like the third, through three grades under us to three grades over us, you know, in high school. And, and hey, do you remember this person? No, I don't remember that person. Like, I might remember their face, but yeah. Uh, I, uh, the holiday specials, too, they didn't have too many for Valentine's Day, but they did have the Charlie Brown one with a little redhead girl, which you never saw. That was kind of bitter. I know. They always make... I think he got a Valentine from her, but that's about it. <laughs> it's funny because I never, you know, I mean, this is kind of off subject, but I never, you know, Charlie, you know, Charlie Brown bummed me out even when I was a kid. Oh, okay. I'm like, just the, just the, you know, the Lucy pulling the football and like all that kind of I stuff. Know. And I was like, I hate this. It's just like, slap like around. people are bullies or whatever. Like, I know. enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I thought, I thought it was funny because he was trying so hard. To, to stand up and grab some dignity out of the world, and then he never would get it. And it's, just I, I thought it was just you know a, you find humor in people's a good misery. Frank it was I a mean, good model of of the human condition. Yeah, you might as well get used to it. Some of the older ones though are better, but whatever. Anyway, we're going a little off topic because yeah. what we really want to talk about is the twisted and strange uh, parts, the more interesting parts of Valentine's Day. And uh, some of them very dark, some of them not so dark. There's some very uh, trippy couples. Uh, there's people that uh, have animals or inanimate objects for their uh, passion. Significant other. <laughs> I think back in 2006, yeah, there was a Hindu woman in India, and she claimed to have fallen in love with a snake. And so she married said snake. And with all the Hindu rituals, he had 2,000 people in the, in the procession. And, but the snake didn't really attend. He, uh, in his place, was a brass snake and stood in for him. And so, because uh, it, it was a cobra, by the way. And uh, another strange couple uh, was an ex-soldier from San Francisco. And she said she'd fallen in love with the Eiffel Tower. So in 2005, uh, she married it. And, uh, the, um, and she changed her name to Erica Latour Eiffel. <laughs> so, and uh, this is sort of the lighter side, and and going with that same theme, James, you have another but less uh, ridiculous couple, but well, just I, as odd. I do want to say that while I was reading and uh, <coughs> investigating this topic, I also found that somebody in uh, in I think South Korea uh, married, and it's it's sad, but it's also crazy, right? They married his dead bride. She had died in an accident, and they actually on her funeral married her. I don't know how that's possible. I but don't know if that's touching or, <coughs> or disturbing. Or, Maybe yeah. it's both. So, anyways, to get us started, but I, you know, the first the first I I, I have I, I just uh, the first couple I have is is I find is weird and interesting. Only because they're known for some of the best love sonnets ever written, and that's Elizabeth Browning and Robert Browning. Robert Browning was six years uh, younger than Elizabeth, and Elizabeth w- w- lived with her father, and he's a domineering father, and would uh, 
did not allow them. It was against marriage for I don't know why, but it was against marriage and would not allow well, his I know children. Why. Yeah, right. We all know why, but uh, it was against his children marrying, and I think it was because of the fortune, his fortune, would be gone, or you know that kind of thing. And so Robert fell in love with her poetry first, and then started writing her, and then eventually they kind of became, uh, uh, you know, secret. Uh, friends and then secret uh you know more than friends and they had to end up eloping and uh the the so all of these sonnets and everything are written when by the time they they fled from her parents house and then went to be in italy where she lived the rest of her life and they had one child together but the the fun part was she's like such a big Feminist, at the very beginning, she, she thought, oh, well, you're only in love with my words. And she was like, oh, Pompadour. But they actually were purported to live, like, right next to each other, which I think is actually why they could write these beautiful sonnets to each other, because they didn't live with each other, Frank. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the true way of staying in love. And so that's that's why I love this couple. And it's, uh, you know, one of our, on our interesting and weird list, because... The people that that uh, purported to have the beautiful, most beautiful relationship and wrote eloquently about it uh, had a little secret. It was we're not going to live with each other. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, James. But I'm gonna. Our next one is going to be a little bit darker. All right, let's bring it on. This is about Carl Tanzler and his wonderful love, Elena Milagro de Hejos. And they met uh, when um, Elena was a patient of his suffering from tuberculosis. He, he wasn't a doctor. He was a radio, uh, radiology tech in a marine hospital in Key West. And uh, the disease was treatable back th- uh, now, of course, but back then, in the 30s, it was pretty fatal. Um, Elena was a beautiful woman, and uh, she captured Tanzler's heart. And he was determined to see her through her illness. And under his care, you know, he was a technician, not a doctor, but he tried all these different treatments, uh, but it, it didn't work. And uh, eventually she died. And um, he couldn't take it. And But at his assistance, he paid for the funeral and, and the mausoleum. And he would visit it nightly for like about two years. And then he got it into his head, it'd be a better idea to bring the decomposing corpse home with him. So he robbed the grave, and he used wags, uh, wigs, and a plaster paris uh, to gussy up the body, replacing the skin and bone and even an eye. And he kept this in his home for seven years until the relatives of the girl caught wind of it <laughs> and came and reclaimed the remains and buried her again. I didn't find out what happened to the man, but I'm sure some jail time. He, he must have had his love affair from the jail from then on. Oh, man. That is crazy. Very nice and very dark. James, what's your next one? My next one is a little couple that, uh, I don't know if they like to call themselves the Lonely Heart Killers, but everybody else did like to call them. (laughs) And I don't know if you've heard of this, Frank, but this is a couple, Raymond Martinez Fernandez and Martha Martha Beck. And they they are an American serial killer couple. And... uh, it was believed that they killed 20 women, and uh, they would meet their unsuspecting women through 
Lonely Heart ads. That's what they were called back then. The the, the personals were called Lonely Heart ads. So I thought it was uh, apropos for Valentine's Day. I think she days. met him through an Lonely Heart ad, yeah, too. Yeah, So uh, Raymond was born in Hawaii to Spanish parents, and then he moved to Spain as an adult. And he joined the mer- Merchant Marines in Spain and, and was actually a member of the British intelligence during World War II. And why I mentioned this is then he went to America to find work. And on his way to America, something happened on the boat and like a steel lid fell on his head and it cracked his skull <laughs> and ah, damaged his frontal lobe. An explanation. And and there are definite theories that this really changed the way that he was. And so <laughs> and I, not for the good. And I don't know what the woman's problem was because I don't think she got smashed in the head. But this guy definitely did. So, after he got out of the hospital, he stole clothes uh, because he was down on his luck and and, uh, a little crazy, obviously, and uh, he was put in jail for a year. And as he was in jail for a year, his sailmate taught him voodoo and black magic. (laughs) I'm not making this up. he didn't even have a sailmate. This is actually what, what was sold. So, Martha, she had a tragic childhood. Think of a tragic childhood. I won't go over it. It was tragic. That's very bad. And uh, but she became a nurse, and uh, and uh, she had a couple of children out of wedlock, and then and then placed uh, a faithful ad in the Lonely Hearts section. Oh, there we and go. And that's that's where the two murderers uh, found in each other, and it was so crazy that she she fell in love with him, and then. What happened was she basically gave her kids away to the Salvation oh, Army no. to be she with him. And he, and he saw that as the ultimate act of love and was with him forever. But he immediately told him or her of their of his of his plans. Was he killing to, people already then? It doesn't it I, I didn't I didn't think so, but he told her of his plans to to put ads in the newspaper and, and okay cause trouble and then she she was okay and they wow. they they they're horrible they're again i don't want to i don't want to you know sensationalize the murders so we won't go or you can look at them but they were horrible <laughs> and they killed people and children and all kinds of stuff but uh anyways they were caught in and put on trial in 1951 and uh they were executed both of them and I'll leave you with this. The last words that each of them had to say. All right. Raymond said, I want to shout it out. I love Martha. What did the public know about love? Okay. <laughs> All right. So it's beautiful, Frank. A beautiful, yeah, a beautiful. So. And then Martha, my story is a love story, but only those tortured by love can know what I mean. I am not uh, unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. I am a woman who had a great love and always will have it. Imprisonment in the death house has only strengthened my feeling for Raymond. There you have it. <laughs> Real true love. True love on the... It's Valentine's Day. Nice. Well, I have another a great couple. And this was Cornelius and Angie Billing. And they stabbed each other to death back in, 19, in 2014, excuse me, in front of their two children. <laughs> Both of them... How did they pull that off? <laughs> well... I'll tell you. In fact, I don't think anyone knows, really. These were a South African couple, and they moved to a small village in County Clare in Ireland. And at 6.30, 
this whole story began at, when at 6.30 a policeman was making his rounds and he came by their house and Mrs. Billings came stumbling out the front door uh, bleeding with one of her young daughters in her arms and then she collapsed in the street and then blood started pouring out of her neck so he runs up to treat her and um, she said that their husband had attacked her and uh, so they got one of the cops was taking care of her and the other one went into the house and uh, when he got inside there was the husband and he was lying on the ground and he had been stabbed and wounded pretty badly and and he was still holding a life they told him drop that knife and and he did and then he told the police that my wife stabbed me and i took the knife from her and stabbed her back <laughs> so and that was their last words they 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 collapsed they took her to the hospital they both died um so and i don't know if they ever figured out what the true story was some say there was a custody battle. Other people said there was no... Uh, and the children were unharmed. <laughs> children were unharmed, but yeah. Physically, obviously. Physically, yes. Physically. Wow. So anyway, James, what's your next uh, happy couple? So I don't know if we're going to bring this up like a, to a cheery level, or it's definitely a, not a cheery level, but a little bit Better less... Better than that. Less, no, not less tragic than that, though. But anyways... I, I, uh, we're going to spotlight Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. so I, I did not know. I mean, of course, everybody knows about the boat and how yeah. she died, or at least well, they, they know, know about it, but they, yeah. they know the Circumstance. that there's a story there, you know. But, but I didn't realize that he actually married Natalie in 1951, and they were, or 1957, rather, and they were married from 1957 to 1962. And then they got divorced, and he actually married uh, another girl, another girl, gal from 1963 to 71, and he was engaged to Tina Sinatra in oh, 1971, wow. and then in 1972, him and Natalie Wood got remarried. Wow! And so they were married for uh, you know ten years until 1981, where mysteriously she ended up drowning in Catalina yeah. off off the boat and uh it, it the crazy part about this is I didn't realize that they were married twice and then it ended in that way yeah that's the crazy thing only only Robert Wagner and and Christopher Walken know what happened I don't think they know either because there's a little bit of Johnny Walker in them at the time the captain knows it was a lot of the 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 uh a lot of but they but recently the captain said that he recanted his story that he gave and they they opened the case again and and the last of it is that they changed the death certificate uh in 2014 from accidental drowning to drowning and other undetermined factors well there you have it but that's the same as almost accidental except they're saying they just don't know it's uh, alcohol and boats do not mix whatever happened that's the that's the uh, moral to that story don't go to catalina and get stiffed and then fall overboard preton brother i mean that's that's what it is anyway anyway well there you have it we got five tales uh if it's not uh, uh true love it's definitely some kind of passion anyway so happy valentines everybody happy valentines day
from Hollywood, Barry Sullivan in... The Unexpected. The Unexpected. The Unexpected. Life is filled with the unexpected, romantic, tragic, and mysterious endings to our most ordinary actions. Dreams come true, or dreams are shattered by sudden twists of fate in The Unexpected. But first, a word from your announcer. Norman T. Ballone, assistant janitor. Yeah? Uh, I'm here to inform you that everyone in this unbelievably large advertising agency has been fired. Oh, no. Except for you. Really? Which means, Mr. Ballone, you're now president of this entire unbelievably large oh. advertising agency. Gee, I, I don't know much about advertising. Apparently, neither did anyone else around here. See, I spend most of my time mopping floors and listening to the radio. Radio? Now, there's an efficient and economical way to advertise. Really? Well, sure, radio. Radio costs a fraction of TV, Ooh. and radio targets specific customers. I love radio. Uh, so you'll accept the job. Boy, it's a big responsibility. Make up your mind, Balone. This is the chance of a lifetime. All right, I'll do it. Splendid. In three hours, you will address the stockholders at our annual meeting. Oh, what'll I say? You'll explain why this company lost $17 billion last year. Can I change my mind? I'm I don't really not, Mr. Radio. Red hot because it works. For all the facts, call the station or the Radio Advertising Bureau. And now, Barry Sullivan, famous motion picture, stage, and radio star in Revenge, a drama of the unexpected. <laughs> I'm not going to have very long to tell this. So I'd better be quick and come to the point. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to have very long at all. Please don't talk, Mr. Hastings. Try to save your strength. What for? I know I'm going to die. I, I've got to tell somebody. It might as well be you. It's funny, I've always wanted to keep it a secret before. Now I'm ready to shout it to the whole world. I began at a party during the Mardi Gras. I was feeling very foolish, dressed up as a pirate, and she was across the room. I think she was supposed to be a slave girl or a harem dancer or something. She was wearing so little costume, you really couldn't be sure. As a matter of fact, the chief thing I remember is long, copper-colored hair, a low, throaty voice, and brown arms covered by brass bracelets that jingled as she came closer. May I have the next dance? Uh, sorry, baby, my card's all full. Then I'll have to cut in, won't I? Are you forcing your attentions on me? Will I have to use force? You are a very determined young lady. Do you always get what you want? If I wanted badly enough. Uh, you sound spoiled. No, but I'd like to be. Well, do we dance, or are you just toying with my emotions? We dance. She danced like she talked, slow and with meaning. As I swung her close against me, her bracelets tinkled and caught the rhythm of our feet. Yeah, let's cut this. I've got to get out of here. All right, where are we going? Well, uh, where do you belong? Well, that's a good question. You answer it. Oh, don't rush me. I'll let you know in a little while. I'll meet you by the front door. I may not wait. I'll have to run that risk. 
You don't sound very worried. I'm not, yet. But in case you should get lost or misplaced, what do I ask for? A big boy with an evil glint in his eye. Any answers to... Most anything that has a pretty voice and a pretty face to go along with it. Any particular name? Mine or yours. Oh, I'm willing to make a fair trade. I'm Mark Hastings. Hello, Mark. I'm Ellen. Just Ellen? Well, if it makes any difference, it's... Grandview, Ellen Grandview. It did make a difference. It made all the difference. Because to me, the word Grandview meant fear and hatred and death. That name had kept me alive for ten years. Had brought me 2,000 miles to New Orleans. Driven me through the iron-grilled streets of the city seeking revenge, hunting with murder in my heart. Doesn't matter why I wanted to kill old Evan Grandview. I had my reasons and they were good ones. But there's no time for that now. <clears throat> All you need to know is that I did have to kill him. And he didn't even think I existed. Couldn't possibly have realized that somewhere in the same city was a man whose life he had ruined. A man completely consumed by the desire for revenge. Well, I'm back, Mark. I could hardly bear waiting. Well, let's go. Your place? No, no, I haven't got a place. Oh, poor child, no roof over her head. Oh, I didn't mean that. I live with my stepfather, but it's too far out of town. We don't want to waste that much time. Your stepfather? Yeah, why? Oh, I don't know. I I knew some Grandviews once, or rather my father did. It was in San Francisco. Oh, really? My stepfather used to live there. His name is Eben. No. No, it wasn't the same one. So it was the right family. And she was a stepdaughter. Well, that made everything very convenient. I'd have an easy entrance into the house, and she'd come into a lot of money. It was a break for both of us meeting like this. Uh, maybe we, we should get to know each other better. Yeah, maybe. I'll drive you home. Oh, I wouldn't want to take you out of your way. Besides, I'm not quite ready to go yet. Where, where did you say you lived? With my stepfather. Oh, yeah, that's right. So what kind of a guy is he? My mother seemed to like him. And you? What difference does it make who else I like? As long as I like you. I guess that'll do. For now. <laughs> Later that night, I found out that she lived along one of the bayous about 15 miles out of town. The place was gigantic. <coughs> Rising out of the gray, green moss and cypress and swamp water with all the white splendor of a mausoleum. But Grandview was away for the weekend, looking after some property in the northern part of the state. So I decided to renew my acquaintance with Ellen in the not-too-far-distant future. Hello, Mark. Say, how did you know it was me? Oh, I have hunches. Can I come out tonight? No, I'll meet you in town. Have a drink ready for me. I'd rather come out there. Why are you so interested in this place? It's dead as a tomb. Well, I'd like to meet your stepfather and ask for your hand. Is he back yet? <laughs> yeah, I got in this morning, but he's not feeling well. I think that trip was too much for him. You should spend more time at home. Why all this interest in Evan? You talk more about him than you do about me. Well, a man talks about a lot of things that aren't important. Uh, Ellen was a pleasant way to pass the time, but I'd been squiring her for a week, 
And I wasn't one bit closer to the old man than the night I first met her. And I had to get closer. There was a nice, clean thirty-eight automatic in my pocket, waiting for an introduction. Two days later, the hatred had crept out of my brain and down into my itching fingers. I just could not wait any longer. I might lose my chance. I had to kill Eben Grandview that night. The blue roadster gathered moisture on its windshield as I drove down the twisting bayou road. After I nearly went off into the swamp a couple of times, I managed to keep the speedometer under 70. The Grandview place looked like the Taj Mahal in the moonlight, only there wasn't any dome. I had to hit the brakes hard to keep from going into a rose arbor. I was afraid that I'd waken the whole house. But there wasn't a sound from any of the pitch-black Moorish windows. I slipped the safety catch off the 38 and started in toward my revenge. I'd sneak through the garden and across the driveway with all the stealth of an eloping bridegroom. I had my pocket knife poised to go to work on one of the windows when... Nice doggy. Quiet. Please be quiet. Nice doggy. I'll bring you a big steak. Porterhouse steak. Come on, you beast. Scat. Nice doggy. Shut up. But the bloodhound wasn't having any. He was a big brute, red-eyed and ugly. In the faint light, his teeth looked like a greenish-yellow underneath long, slobbering jowls. I shifted the pistol over to my right hand, raised it above my head, and waited for the door to close. Then I jimmied the window catch, swung it open, dropped inside, landing on an oriental rug that was made for waiting. There wasn't any need to turn on a light. I knew about where the stairs should be. Sticking close to the tapestried walls, I'd inch my way along into the main hall when... The sound echoed through the pitch-black house. The low, low-pitched moans of a sobbing woman. Who's there? Who is it? Take it easy, Ellen. Mark! Mark, what are you doing here? I want to see your stepfather. You... You want to see Evan? That's what I said. Where is he? No, we can't go near him. Get away. Get away from here, Mark. Sorry, baby, I'm not leaving yet. I've got some unfinished business. Oh, get out of here. Shut up. What, what are you doing with a gun? I'm going to make you an orphan, baby. I'm going to kill Evan. You're going to kill Evan? You can't, Mark. You can't. Where is he? You wanted to kill him all the time, haven't you? Haven't you? That's right. Yes, you haven't cared about me. You've been after Evan. I understand that. Now, you don't care anything about me. I wouldn't say that. You're pleasant enough. All right. Go ahead upstairs, the first door. He's in there waiting for you. Go ahead, Mark. Kill him if that's what you want. Go ahead and kill him. The old man was lying on the big four-poster bed, staring at me. His eyes were glassy, and a little stream of saliva curled down his cheek. I walked over beside him. I pulled out the gun, but he didn't say a word. And something told me what had happened. I bent over and put my hand on his forehead, and it was hot. Inhumanly hot. But his heart was cold and still. Somebody or something had beat me to my revenge. Eben Grandview was already dead.
think the story is over, don't you? But wait. Fate takes a hand. Wait for the unexpected. for the surprising conclusion of Revenge, a Hamilton Whitney production starring Barry Sullivan, written by Robert Libet and Frank Burt, and directed by Frank K. Danzig. I rushed out of the house ignoring Ellen's white, tear-stained face. I slammed the heavy mahogany door and stood on the front porch, breathing hard, angry, cheated. After ten years, I'd missed my chance for revenge. And then... Then I saw the sign... First, the red letters on the front door looked blurred and meaningless. <coughs> but after a minute, I could read them quite clearly. Danger. Contagious disease. Cholera. The most deadly disease in the world. <coughs> Revenge starred Barry Sullivan. Listen again soon for another of your favorite motion picture stars in a drama of The Unexpected. program was transcribed in Hollywood. It's over. Ah, but don't be alarmed. It's just a podcast. But before we go, what do you got for us, Uncle Frank? Sonny Bono's birthday was February the 16th. He was born back in 1935, and as everyone knows, he lived a pretty interesting life. Singer, songwriter, producer, TV star, pop icon, and then a congressman. And it all ended too soon with a skiing accident, just a week after the Kennedy boy met the same fate. 
In remembrance, we have one of his performances from 1965, Laugh at Me. So until next time, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Good night. I never thought I'd set a record by myself. But I got something I want to say. I want to say it for sure. And I hope I say it for a lot of people. says to do I'll do them for you